In just a few days, Gainesville residents will head to the polls to pick a new mayor. Term limits prevent current mayor Lauren Poe from running again. In the primary, nine people campaigned for the city's top job, but none of them got enough votes to win outright. Now the top two candidates, Ed Velarski and Harvey Ward, hope to get your votes on election day. Who will best represent you? Before you vote, listen to the candidates' positions on important issues. In partnership with the Gainesville Sun, this is a WUFT News special presentation, The Gainesville Mayoral Debate. Now, from the University of Florida's Levin College of Law, here's tonight's moderator, Heather Van Blockland. And good evening, I am Heather Van Blockland, executive producer and director of content for WUFT TV and FM. I'm honored to be your host and moderator for tonight's event. Thank you all for coming out. We'd like to take a moment to thank the UF Levin College of Law for generously providing tonight's venue. It is lovely. I want to thank the audience. Welcome to you, our in-person audience gathered here on the University of Florida campus, and to those listening, WUFTFM 89.1, 90.1, and at Gainesville.com. Thank you all for being here tonight. For our audience here with us, just a reminder, we do ask that you silence your cell phones and out of respect for the candidates, we ask you to remain quiet throughout the debate. Refrain from applause, refrain from cheers or verbal expressions of opposition. Like I just mentioned, we are broadcasting live. That allows our listening audience to listen along with you. And hello to our candidates. Thank you for being here. Greetings. I'm very proud to present Harvey Ward, the new mayor of Gainesville. <laughs> Harvey Ward Jr. will be moving forward as Gainesville's next mayor. He spoke in front of his supporters last night at the Hartwood Soundstage. He thanked his family and supporters for supporting him throughout the campaign. From the very beginning, I said that what we were most interested in doing was running a campaign that my supporters and I could be proud of, and by God we did that, didn't we? Ward says he's looking to be working very closely with the Alachua County Commission and School Board. He ended his victory speech by saying that there's a lot of work ahead, but Gainesville is a very special place. And Three proposed amendments to the Florida Constitution were on the midterm election ballot. Amendment 1 has not passed. The amendment was proposed to incentivize homeowners to stormproof their properties. Had it passed, the amendment would have given the Florida State Legislature the power to implement laws that allowed Floridians to make storm preparedness-related improvements without their property taxes increasing. Pinellas County property appraiser Mike Twitty wants to make it clear that the goal of Amendment 1 was to aid homeowners in Florida as they took a proactive approach to the catastrophes that accompany floods. What it's trying to do is incentivize homeowners to get out of harm's way by investing private capital rather than having to rely on bailouts and insurance payments and things after a calamity happens. Opponents to the amendment have argued that its language was too broad, which could have created opportunities for abuse. Votes for Amendment 1 did not reach the 60% needed to pass. Nathaniel Wilson, WUFT News. Like in so many other southern states during the Jim Crow era, Florida's white-only beaches limited black Americans' access to coastal areas. It's why some black beaches in the state were incredibly popular. One beach was Manhattan Beach in Duval County, where current-day Catherine Abbey Hannah Park is located. Manhattan was a safe space for the community to collectively enjoy the beach without worry from white guests. Adjunct history professor at the University of North Florida, Brittany Cohill, says Manhattan's creation in the year 1900 was a milestone for black Americans across the South. 
As far as the historical record shows at this moment in time, it appears as though Manhattan Beach is the first black beach resort in the southeastern United States. Although its existence lasted nearly four decades, Cohill explains it had its issues when compared to the white coastal areas like Jacksonville Beach. There wasn't as much funding and there wasn't as much infrastructure there, too. So Manhattan Beach was more susceptible to major storms that would come through, beach erosion. And so sometimes these structures were endangered by nature and and some of them would wash out into the ocean and have to be rebuilt and things of that nature. Whereas in Jacksonville Beach, you know, there was greater infrastructure, more funding, more revenue But for what it was, it provided a multi-purpose safe space for black Americans to enjoy. Although the beach was mainly used for recreational purposes, it was also used for medicinal purposes. Coordinator of Special Collections at the Thomas G. Carpenter Library, Jennifer Bibb, explains how known philanthropist Eartha M.M. White used the beach medicinally. She had a fresh air camp that she would take children who were ill, take them to stay out there for like a month or a few weeks. Manhattan Beach closed in the 1930s, around the time when another black beach in the Jacksonville area opened up to the public in 1935. American Beach was like, it was just people. One time it was the only black beach on the East Coast, on the Southeast Coast, and people came from everywhere here. It was just a big party every weekend. That's Ronald Miller, the founder and tour guide of Coast One Tours, who spent his childhood playing in American sand dunes. The beach area was originally purchased by one of Florida's first black millionaires, A.L. Lewis, who used the money from his group, the Afro-American Life Insurance Company. At its peak, the beach was over 216 acres, and its nightclubs, hotels, and restaurants hosted numerous black celebrities over the years. It was a nightclub called Evans Rendezvous, and that's where everybody gathered. The adults gathered at Evans. The kids, we had had our own little game room called El Patio, and... Basically, the only time we went in Evans was to get money to either buy ice cream or go to the game room. He says his favorite memories come from the car races on the beach. At low tide, they would they, guys came from all over the southeast and they had these little souped up cars and it was fun to me. And one of the guys who was a driver was my neighbor from right down the street. And uh, he'd start on Thursday night putting some pieces together and then Saturday morning he'd have about have it all together and they'd go out and race. He, he won almost all the time. He says while there, everyone cared for each other. It was a village. Everybody was everybody's parents. Everybody was everybody's child. It was just a great place to grow up. It was a great place to be. Nowadays, the beaches look a lot different and are a lot quieter. But at their peaks, Manhattan and American beaches provided the black community with a coastal safe space at a time where safety for black Americans was sparsely guaranteed. Christina Puglisi, WUFT News. Hi, my name is Katie Heisen. I report on equity issues as a Report for America Corps member at WUFT News. When I started this beat, I watched a YouTube video of Lynetta McNeely, an Alachua County School Board member, speaking at a community event in 2018 about the marching band at Eastside High. The moves that those people could do and the crowd would go wow. I'd heard of this band before. It's legendary in Gainesville for the way it used to embody joy and swagger and excellence and reflect the culture of the majority black school and the neighborhoods that surround it. But McNeely noticed something about the band today. When you look at the band now, I started wondering, where are the children 
that looked like me. What happened to them? The majority of the students in the east side band now are white students. And I wonder why. Why? What happened to this band? I couldn't shake her questions. It launched two months of reporting, during which I'd speak with over a dozen community members, school representatives, and band alumni spanning five decades. I looked in museum and newspaper archives and hunted through 50 years of yearbooks to find the answer. What emerged is a story of decisions made by school administrators following desegregation. Decisions that erased a traditional Black marching style from Gainesville. For the next half hour, hear from community members about why that law still matters decades later. Let me read this to you, because this is something that I had put together because I was upset. I, Alonzo Young, just the other day I visited my high school, Eastside, that I graduated some years ago. I noticed there wasn't any history of the school beginning, which was developed after integration. I was sitting in Alonzo Young's living room in Lake Butler. Young was wearing a pinstripe fedora. He had printed out pictures of his time in the Eastside High School marching band in the early 70s. And he had printed out this Facebook post he was now reading to me. The school band has changed from a jamming marching band that was once known as Little FAMU, Florida A&M University, to a core style marching band. Young is upset about a change in the style of the band that was made more than 30 years ago. It went from the traditional marching style common to historically black colleges and universities, high steps, swinging instruments and dancing, to core style, stiff movements and glide steps. What can be done? Who can I talk with? Who will listen and do something to help our school return to our original tradition? This is a story of how the way high school students move on a football field at halftime can divide a town. It's a story about community identity and profound loss. Decades later, many are still asking for the traditional style to come back. Understanding why starts with a bit of background on Integration, oh boy. In the late 60s, Young went to Lincoln High School, the secondary school for black students in Gainesville. This is where my brother graduated. This is where my sister graduated. This is something that we have. This is our school. When the federal government finally enforced desegregation at the end of 1969, most places in the country chose to close the black schools and force those students to integrate into white schools. That's also what happened in Alachua County. 
Lincoln students were sent to formerly white schools and two new integrated schools, Buholtz High on the west side and Eastside High. My name is John Dukes III. My father was John Dukes Jr. John Ronnie Nix is a farmer in Rochelle, a historic community in eastern Alachua County. He says during the Reconstruction era, thriving black farms took up much of the area. And over the years, families have lost a lot of that land. At 69, Nix is on a mission to preserve the black farms that are left. He's president of a newly formed co-op of local black farmers working to become profitable again. His grandparents started the farm he now runs. His great-grandparents were enslaved here. I joined him as he loaded up his truck with feed and a massive bucket of bread slices and headed toward the farm. His farm used to be much larger, more than 2,000 acres of livestock and crops. Now, much of it has been clear-cut for a wood-burning power plant, a sore spot for Nick's. He points to trailers along one edge. And sometimes I feel like the Indians riding through, uh, uh, looking at land that they used to <laughs> hunt and stuff, and now they have the settlement sitting there. Today, his farm is a few dozen cattle who are very excited to see him pull up with bread. The story of Nix's farm is like that of many black farms in the U.S. When the industry became mechanized and white farmers took out loans for things like tractors and irrigation, black farmers often couldn't. The Farm Service Agency discriminated against black farmers in their lending, resulting in the late 1990s in the largest civil rights settlement in U.S. history. Many had to sell. And the Black-owned farms left are about 50 times less profitable on average than white farms. Jake Pulowski, a partner at the consulting firm McKinsey & Company, analyzed these disparities and what's at stake. So our research estimated that there's at least $5 billion in economic value created just from closing the performance gap. And it's not just potential money on the table. It's dinner. This helps address some of the megatrends facing the global agriculture industry, in particular things like food security, and as well addressing urban food deserts. Nix is working on solutions. He's collaborating with county officials to create a USDA-approved meat processing plant so local farms could sell to customers directly and boost profits. Profit would be necessary to solving a second puzzle, getting the next generation interested, like Nix's grandson, Keelan Fuller. I've been going out to the farms like before I could even walk. I spoke with him at Santa Fe Community College, where he's studying animal science. He says he's always known he would take on the farm. I'm all for taking it on. I just, I want to make sure when I take it on, I can continue to bring success. But Nick says his grandson is rare among his peers. There's been a misconception by, by young black generations that farm work and agriculture 
was connected to slavery. And, I, and like I see it as a blessing, they see it as work. <laughs> he says this association with slavery ignores the other role of farming in black history. Land ownership, being able to be independent uh, and have your own food is a foundation for what, what made black people in general get their freedom. And they, they sacrificed so much for that. Nix hopes to take his ideas to a new role. He's running against Dylan Thomas to represent Eastern Alachua County in the upcoming Farm Service Agency election. Report for America at WUFT News, I'm Katie Heisen. What's the problem with gun violence in Gainesville? As of September, there have been 245 reports of shots fired in the city since 2020. According to public records, at least 100 service calls for verified gunshots occurred this year. What's contributing to this? Is it legal ownership? Not exactly. Gainesville Police Department Corporal Shelley Polsel says that while the department does acknowledge shootings that come from legally possessed guns, We are aware that people who legally purchase firearms have a propensity to also commit crimes with those firearms as well. Gun violence in Gainesville mostly come from gangs, who largely possess illegal firearms. Of the 245 reports, 13 guns recovered from these incidents were illegally possessed. This may sound like a small amount, but Pulsal says recovering any gun involved in a crime is difficult, requiring extensive investigation. She says the number of illegally possessed guns in Gainesville is likely higher. In many cases, the guns are used to commit crimes and then they're disposed of or they're hidden. And in many cases, we actually don't locate those firearms. But some legal owners may be indirectly contributing to gun violence caused by illegal possession. Improper care makes it easier for gangs and others to obtain these weapons. And how are they getting their hands on them? Mainly through vehicle burglaries. Which Postal says happens after owners leave firearms in their unlocked cars. GPD public records reveal that there have been 88 reports of stolen guns and over 600 complaints of vehicle burglaries this year. It's unclear how many of these firearms were snatched from the vehicle burglaries, but one local gun store is recognizing the same issue with its customers. At Shoot GTR and Lawful Defense, operations manager Bennett Latimer says some of his buyers come back complaining about their guns being stolen. It is an issue. We have customers that purchased guns anywhere from six months ago to six years ago that will come in and say they need their serial number so that they can file their police report that their gun's been stolen. And he's noticing these requests more often. In the last year, we've seen an uptick. Uh, and some, some of them we don't hear from because they've, they've got a record of their serial number in their house that they can access if their gun's stolen. But it may get a little harder for Shoot GTR and GPD to track these firearms. Earlier this month, a federal judge ruled that requiring serial numbers on guns violates the Second Amendment. According to court documents, Judge Joseph R. Goodwin says serial numbers were not around when the amendment was ratified in 1791. His ruling follows the Supreme Court's lead after the court struck down a century-old gun law in New York. It's unclear what the future holds for this law following this ruling, but in an effort to reduce these crimes, both GPD and Shoot GTR in lawful defense share the same message. Lock away your guns and keep them out of reach from others. Jake Reyes, WUFT News. Pride Center of North Central Florida officials woke up Saturday to calls that their building had been vandalized. 
According to the center's Vice President James Brown, when members arrived to the plaza around 9 a.m., they found the building's front door and adjacent window had been shattered. Among the rubble, rocks and a hateful note were found. Brown says it was heartbreaking to see what happened, but he and other board members want to move forward. He says that the center's first priority is letting people know that their programming will still be available to them and that they are committed to ensuring everyone's safety. The things that we do are going to continue no matter in the face of all of this adversity and pushback and vandalism. And that's not just for, for us as a board organizing, but I think it's important for the community to know that like we are hurting and we are sad that this happened and we also are completely still committed, 100% committed to continue to do the work that we do. As word spread about the vandalization, members of the LGBTQ community and allies formed a small crew to help with cleaning up fallen glass and securing the hollowed out frames where the door and window once stood. Over the course of the day, about 30 people, including local candidates and political leaders, were in and out of the building to help clean or show their support for the center. City Commissioner Harvey Ward says he was shocked, but less surprised, to hear about what happened. Ward says his lack of surprise is because he's noticed a trend of intimidation efforts across town. He specifically points to an incident last month where the Democratic Party local headquarters was vandalized, and also instances of anti-Semitic messages being spread across Gainesville neighborhoods. There's no one person at fault other than whoever it was who you know, broke the windows here, but there's a longer trail there. there there's a, a pattern of behavior of, of uh, you know, hateful messages and, and hateful rhetoric that we shouldn't be surprised when, when that kind of rhetoric ends in, in things like this. Longtime member and donor of the Pride Center, Casey Willits, was disgusted and angered by the news. He thinks that incidents like this drive a wedge between community members. People doing this don't really care who gets hurt in the process, whether it's um, LGBTQ people, trans children, uh, teachers who are trying to teach children in Florida. They really don't care the consequences. They are using this to gain power, to divide us, because together we're stronger as Floridians, as Americans. And this is, this is politics to them, but it's real life to us. One thing that Willits and other people at the Pride Center say is that moving forward, the LGBTQ community in North Central Florida will take care of and celebrate each other at upcoming events like the Pride Festival on October 22nd. Julia Cooper, WUFT News. Ohio Task Force One, an urban search and rescue team, is stationed at what is left of Cape Coral Yacht Club. Jack Reel is the leader of the Ohio Force. He said his crew members are searching along the Caloosahatchee River to find survivors. We're going to go up the coastline on the inlet here, you know, obviously come in probably several streets where the we're basically the storm surge. There were more than 1,400 searches done on Saturday alone, but there were no rescues. Along with crews from Indiana, Texas, and Pennsylvania, first responders from Ohio will continue their search and rescue operations in Florida until the job is done, which may take several more days. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Sowers in Cape Coral. With widespread power outages and destruction to homes and stores, Lee County announced the opening of eight points of distribution, or pods, where residents are able to pick up free food, water, and ice. But at one distribution point, Florida National Guard members ran out of military MREs, or meals ready to eat, by about 11.30 a.m. on Saturday. EMS worker and Cape Coral resident Danielle Rosario was hoping to bring supplies home to her three children. 
just even a little bit of water helps at this point, you know. Rosario was also hoping to bring supplies to the patient she helps transport. Local and state authorities are working to set up more pod locations as supplies become available. Flooded roads, Interstate 75 closures, and limited gas created hours-long detours for drivers trying to get across southwest Florida. Clearwater resident Damian Lofton was headed home from Miami. After five hours of delays, he was running out of gas. Now we're just here stuck So we figure it out. In DeSoto County alone, 15 roads have been closed due to floods. County spokesperson Sarah Walker says the floods are still rising due to overflow from nearby Peace River. Some area gas stations have hours-long wait times, while others are entirely out of gas. In the sky above the Fort Myers Yacht Basin, tattered sails flap in the wind. Birds have perched themselves in barren trees. Weathered by the storm, many are missing tail feathers and a nest to go back to. Down below, the marina's residents are picking up the scattered pieces of their own homes. I'm going to guess over a thousand boats that are destroyed up and all of them down this river. Every marina has been destroyed. That's Bill Westbury. His boat miraculously survived the storm with only a few deep scratches on the hull. He says he got lucky. Yeah, we had people jumping off boats when they were cracking up, swimming over here. I saw one guy over there in a sailboat, and his boat was tied too tight, and he swam out there and got on about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And we thought he was a goner, but he apparently was okay. Around the marina, people are drying their valuables and sawing through splintered deck boards. Amber Bramley is ripping up her floorboards and looking for anything that survived the hurricane. When the storm hit, Bramley and her partner MJ had to jump ship and dash to the apartments across the street, where most of their neighbors were sheltered. She says it wasn't until the last hour of the storm that she watched her boat finally sink to the bottom of the marina. I was going to try to stay, and about the fourth band, I realized that I was putting my life and my partner's life in danger if we did that. Once the storm passed, friends and neighbors at the marina rushed to help Bramley pump the water out of her submerged home, saving the vessel. People just stopped what they were doing, and everybody was over here trying to help me raise my boat from the dead. Like Westbury, Bramley also witnessed some close calls on the marina docks. We had some friends, their boat broke free, went down the river, and they piled up against the bridge. They had to climb this bridge to safety. One of those friends whose narrow escape Bramley watched is Danny Ross. Ross has been through a lot in his life. I've had a few things happen. I got hit by a car and dragged and punctured lungs, so I shouldn't have survived that. I got hit by lightning with a hammer in my hand. But he says riding out a Category 4 hurricane on a boat might be his closest brush with death yet. Ross has lived at the marina on his 32-foot motorboat since he lost his last one during Hurricane Irma in 2017. He was warned by his family to get to dry land before the storm hit. Instead, he found a bigger boat, belonging to an older couple, Tony and Ruth, to stay on. I picked the biggest, strongest one, which was the 48-foot um, Silverson here. Beautiful boat, $50,000 yacht. But when the storm hit, the Caloosahatchee River rose and trapped the boat underneath a bridge. There was a symphony of eerie sounds under here, of course, echoing under the bridge. But all these sailboats were popping up and down. Their masts were rubbing against the concrete up top here. So it was making the eeriest sound, but then there was lots of them. So it was an orchestra. Still, the 60-year-old couple who owned the sailboat refused to jump ship. We were not going to leave the boat. 
Tony went down in the bedroom and where the crack is in the side says, there's no more bathroom, it's gone. There's water coming in and the high water alarm's going off. So when we hit the bridge, I wanted to see if there was a way out. Ross climbed the side of the bridge and pulled the couple up to safety. From there, they fled across the street to join their neighbors sheltering at the apartment building. Looking down on the marina, Ross watched his own boat break away from its anchor and wash down the river out of view. It got beat to death. The top flybridge came off and then um, I got tired of looking at it, but when I, I, I couldn't help it. But when I did double take, it was gone. And I'm like, did it sink or did it break? And is it someone's yard in Cape Coral? Ross has nowhere in town to go and is living under the bridge on the wreckage of the boat he narrowly escaped from. He sleeps at the bow, away from the stern's splintered beams and broken glass. Jack Prater, WUFT News. Months after the storm tore through the Gulf Coast, people in the environment are still adjusting to life post-Ian. I was going to try to stay, and about the fourth man, I realized that I was putting my life and my partner's life in danger if we did that. Those affected most are continuing to rely on community support to rebuild, while experts assess the long-term toll on local wildlife populations. In the meantime, both community members and researchers are seeing one phenomenon as nature is recovering. Green growth sprouting from underneath a once brown landscape. The mangroves hugely protected us, as is the whole reason we want to have mangroves to protect barrier islands. They did their job. They may be stripped of vegetation right now, they're still intact. However, with damage like this, rebuilding takes time. And while they wait for results from in-depth research to come back, Southwest Floridians hold their breath. This is Surviving Ian. In the next half hour, we will hear from the Southwest Florida residents slowly putting their lives back together after the disastrous storm and talk to some people who are finding a few positives emerge from all the destruction. I'm Jack Prater. As perhaps one of the most destructive storms in the history of Florida, Hurricane Ian ravaged the Sunshine State. The storm left 4 million Floridians without power in late September. I'm Macy Goldfarb for WUFT News. Here in Brevard County, I'm just outside of Melbourne, less than half a mile from the East Coast. You can probably tell winds are still persistent here, sitting at about 25 miles per hour. I'm Fariha Abroad reporting from the Gainesville Regional Airport. Air Importer spoke to us for the airport. She shared Delta Airlines is continuing operations as normal through its 6 a.m. departure tomorrow morning. After that, Delta flights are canceled until Friday. I'm here in the Sunset Park neighborhood in Tampa where things are looking a lot different than they did last night. The sun is shining, the wind has finally died down a bit, yet businesses like this Circle K behind me are still closed to the public. As you can see, they're still boarded up for the storm and the pumps remain closed. I've been driving around Tampa Bay for most of the afternoon and most damage seems a lot more minimal than we originally expected here in the Bay Area. Lots of fallen palm trees, a few tipped trees and scattered branches are common. The evacuation order in Hillsboro has been lifted. However, authorities continue to urge those on the road to use caution. In Tampa, Amy Gallo, WUFT News. Forming on September 23rd, then Tropical Storm Ian became a hurricane three days later on the 26th. Ian rapidly intensified, becoming a Category 4 storm in the next two days. 
The storm made landfall at Kea Costa with maximum sustained winds of 150 miles per hour, according to the National Environment Satellite Data and Information Service. That's just seven miles under being considered a Category 5, which is the most intense and powerful classification for hurricanes. Ian brought on an unprecedented storm surge of 12 to 18 feet in some areas. Good morning, everyone. Chief Meteorologist Jeff George in the Storm Center with the latest on Hurricane Ian. All right, storm surge is going to be devastating. Uh, we're looking at up to 12 to maybe 16 feet, and that's around and south of Sarasota, down towards Fort Myers, all the way into Collier County and far southern parts of the state. And um, this is life-threatening storm surge, and these numbers have increased overnight, by the way. Almost all the numbers have increased overnight. Uh, we have higher wind speeds, higher sustained wind speeds, higher wind gusts are expected, higher storm surge is expected. And as you're gonna see here in just a second, rain totals have also gone up in some areas. As the storm barreled across the state, it was eventually downgraded to a tropical storm. While it was declining in strength, Ian also brought on immense rainfall. Volusia County flooded in areas where the water didn't recede for days. You know, anything that wasn't, if it was touching the ground and could absorb water, it, it did. You know, we tried to save as much as we could, but it's water, you know, how you fight water. Lake Wales in central Florida saw up to 17 inches of rainfall in a 24-hour period. We've got three weeks left of hurricane season. You know, it goes all the way through the end of November. We certainly hope we don't have a third storm. Polk County in 2004, we had three hurricanes come through our county that year. Uh, we're the only county in the country that's had three hurricanes come through in the same year. But Cape Coral and Fort Myers suffered some of the worst damage of all. In the weeks after, sewage leaked out of manholes into the Caloosahatchee River that separates the two cities. The air was still tainted by the smell of gasoline and oil. On Fort Myers Beach, damage from the storm could be seen everywhere. Restaurants separated from their foundations and were seen floating down the street. The city's main fishing pier was reduced to just its wooden pilings. Offshore fishing vessels lay stacked atop one another and caught in the mangroves further inland. Some buildings that did survive the storm surge were heavily damaged. At the Fort Myers Yacht Basin, ships were piled on top of each other, reaching several feet above the pier. I'm going to guess over a thousand boats that are destroyed up and all of them down this river. Every marina's been destroyed. If you go to the corner of the marina over there, you'll see parts of legacy docks floated this way. Some vessels sank to the bottom, while a few were carried by storm surge up over the docks and onto roads. Residents described the scene as looking like boats had fallen straight from the sky. It got beat to death. The top flybridge came off. And then um, I got tired of looking at it, but when I, I, I couldn't help it. But when I did double take, it was gone. And I'm like, did it sink or did it break? And is it someone's yard in Cape Coral? Today, remnants of houseboats are still visible from Edison Bridge. Across the river in Cape Coral, Camille Lumbert worked as a fishing charter captain for two years. She says she's unsure of the future the coast may be facing. We had captains going out and I mean, I would come back and they're just bawling their eyes out, you know, so it's, it's you, you look at it how everything's destroyed and then you look at, you know, how many people were here with a 16 foot of surge trying to swim their way to, to live. 
Smaller boats in the getaway marina at Pelican Bay are overturned in the water, but most of the damage from the catastrophic storm was found across southwest Florida's barrier islands. Sanibel Island, usually a sleepy beach town, was severed from the mainland by a collapse of its causeway bridge. Carolyn Bradbury Schwartz braved the hurricane in her home on Sanibel and watched as the storm surge washed over the island. So I'm looking out my front window and I thought, oh my God, there is a wave coming. So this wave just comes across the cart path. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> and um, it hit Sandcastle and then just rushes up the road like a river. I mean, it just took everything. And all of a sudden it's just inching forward like by the minutes like this, just coming in. And then all of a sudden I'm like run downstairs and we're grabbing as much as we could to bring it up. The refrigerator in the garage ended up on the hood of my car. Everything was floating. And, um, but yeah, and then luckily, you know, hours and hours this went on. And then all of a sudden it was like, it's going down. <laughs> but even though the bridge is now repaired, residents like Schwartz can't get into their waterlogged homes for the holidays. An average of 21.5 million people were forcibly displaced each year by natural disasters between 2008 and 2016, according to a United Nations report. 13 Florida counties were declared eligible for federal disaster relief following the hurricane, and property damage is estimated to be upwards of $100 billion across affected areas. We had a rapid restoration of power throughout the state on a scale that we've never done so quickly before. Uh, of course, uh, unprecedented search and rescue that was helping particularly people out here where we are right now, as well as other barrier islands and other places where people needed help. Uh, we also made sure that where there were uh, lagging in resources for things like power restoration, that we marshaled the resources in the state with other companies to come help in Lee County. More than 100 people died in the hurricane, and many of those who survived have lost their homes. While there is no current estimate on the number of refugees displaced by Hurricane Ian, Southwest Florida residents are still taking stock of their damages and how much of these repairs needs to come from their own pockets. Homeowners and renters dealing with this property damage have lots of questions about how to handle insurance claims and FEMA rules and many don't have the resources or the time to sit down with an attorney. So in Cape Coral, the attorneys came to them. They're coming with their head down, you know, insecure or I'm, I guess more anxious of, I have this problem, I don't know what to do. Local lawyers associated with the Calusa Inn of Court have held free monthly legal clinics all around Lee County since the storm hit. Business lawyer Maritrini Soto-Garcia says questions range from landlord-tenant issues to insurance claims to permitting requests. At the third clinic hosted by the association, Soto-Garcia says she noticed the smiles and gratitude shown by the community. We're here because we want to volunteer, we want to give our time, and we want to provide the resources that we can, right? And it's good to hear that it's making a difference to someone's life. Soto-Garcia says she has heard horror stories one family told her they paid their full rent in October, despite 90% of their house being uninhabitable. It's gut-wrenching to hear that, but at the same time, they're so vulnerable. They're in a position of vulnerability. They don't know what their rights are, and they don't want to lose their home, right? They're thinking, if I don't pay my rent, I'm going to be evicted. And there is a shortage of housing in the area. 
but most in attendance had issues with their insurance companies. Kip Coral resident Louise Torkelson hasn't even been able to get in touch with her insurance company concerning the damages to her home. And we've had trouble getting our insurance company to respond to us, so they just keep postponing us, so we're hoping that this will help. Business lawyer Stephen Domerick says many people like Coral.